0: Hello Greyhound, this is Trap One. Do you read me? Over.
1: Welcome to the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark McManus. This week I'm delighted to welcome Chris McKeown back. Hi Chris, how's it going?
0: Hello, Hello again Mark. It's great to see you again. I'm doing very well.
1: Great. Thank you very much for taking the time today. So, Uh, You've written, as we've covered on previous podcasts, you've written an audio Doctor Who story, which is a a final confrontation for the third Doctor and the Delgado incarnation of the Master. Um, So we'll be be talking about much more about that on on future podcasts. Um, And today we decided to talk about their first encounter in Terror of the Autons. Uh, So how did you first come across this story? Do you remember the first time you saw it or anything?
0: Yes, I do. Now this is going back a long time and I... And I told you already about how watching it on PBS, um, since the earliest, um, although in in that time, I think I, I mentioned it I mean, on another podcast with another person that I cast my mind back and I think the very first story that I ever watched in Doctor Who, maybe to give an addendum to your question way back then, uh, is probably the War Games. I think I saw the War Games, but I didn't understand what it was because, you know, as a very young child, mm-hmm. watching a black and white thing and then seeing something in color, it's like... Uh, you know, but um, Terror of the Autumns would have been very early, was very early in my history of memories of watching Doctor Who. In fact, I think I, maybe it was just a television set I was watching. I don't know, but it might have been black and white copy. I think that um, a, a color copy – you see, I was watching when color copies of to- Terror of the Autumns, was it were available. I think for whatever reason, the PBS station had, uh, even then, um, black and white copies of things like – I think the Silurians was in black and white. Again, it was there were, the color copies have been around for a few years, but for whatever reason, they just had a black and white copy. Uh, Ambassador Death was definitely black and white. Tear of the Autons was in black and white. And I even then remember thinking to myself, why is Silurians, Ambassador Death, black and white? Inferno was in color. Tear of the Autons is in black and white. And Mind of Evil I think it's black and white. But the point is, I remember that. That was my first memory. That it was a, a shift between color and black and white. Um, I remember, so yeah, that's what I I remember watching Tony
1: Autos very early on in my time watching Doctor Who, yes. Yeah, as I understand it, the the colour copy doesn't exist anymore, so it wasn't colourised until the VHS release, so any repeats Mm -hmm. up to that point, which I guess would have PBS over there, we had a satellite channel called UK Gold in the 90s that started showing old stories and stuff, so it was all this black and white until they they did the colourisation process, for the, for the VHS yeah. releases, so yeah, I think the first time I saw it would have been uh, would have been in black and white as well. Yeah,
0: it's interesting, I, I, um, I've se- of course I've seen it since in colour, uh, I saw it in colour, like I said, I think the colour copy is by the time I was watching it, but available for a while, the, the VHS or whatever, uh, I was watching it when, you know, v- DVDs were just starting to come out, but I mm-hmm. first, I'm pretty sure I first actually saw it on a VHS cassette when I was, well, the second time probably that I saw it was on a VHS cassette. My parents still had a VHS. They had a DVD VHS kind of combined yeah. player. One interesting thing about Terror of the Autons, for me at least, was the VHS copy, and I've mentioned this I think was um, has, you know, on the back cover there was a synopsis of the episode. There were two weird things about that that VHS was one, the VHS copy, you know, I don't have them, you know, now that DVDs, but the VHS copy had quotes from the episode. The quote from that episode was a quote that doesn't exi- doesn't appear in the episode, which was, it's from the Master, and, he, and the quote is, I have come to destroy you, Doctor, once and for all. He doesn't say that in the episode. No. <laughs> yeah, he, and, and I've watched that episode enough that I can know, because I was looking for, where does he say that? Cool, it's yeah. a wonderful quote. He doesn't say that. The other weird thing was the synopsis of the episode. I don't remember... The whole synopsis, I never read it, but I remember the first two, um, sentence in the beginning of the next, because this is a key. The earth is in terrible danger, exclamation. The master is back. Now, that's the weird thing about yeah. that synopsis. It, if, you want, if you watch it first time, you know, like me as a little kid, oh, the master's back. This must be at least his second appearance. That was interesting. Leaves yeah. the door open for a few interesting things. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I wonder if that was about yeah. just the order of the VHS releases, maybe uh, that, uh, that that whoever's in charge of writing the blurbs thought there'd been master releases previously. So uh, <laughs> the the other possibility being, I guess, because uh, obviously the Doctor already knows of the Master in this story, because um, yeah. sure. uh, I know that uh, the the War Chief, uh, you know, a lot of people see that as as potentially a, an earlier incarnation of the Master, don't they? Yeah.
0: Well, you can't see me in this podcast, but you could, you see, I'm doing a thumbs up. I absolutely believe that. When I mm. saw the, and I won't distract too much from Tear of the Autons, just to give a sense of it, by the time I'm watching Terror of the Autons um, on, you know, VHS and DVD, I've already seen the war games, but again, for the second time, probably. Mm. And now I can understand how it connects to the rest of the series. I've seen it once before. It's probably the first Doctor story I ever saw. And I see the War Chief in that story, and I... I'm not – by that point, I'm not – not, I wouldn't say naive, but inexperienced enough to think, that's the master. Oh, that's the intention. No, but I thought to myself, that's got to be something connect- – because I could do the math. I thought, okay, War Games – in fact, we've just hit the – fifth. I think as of tomorrow. I think tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of episode 10. So neat little historical note. At yeah. the time of this recording, as of tomorrow, the entirety of the Patrick Troutner will pass into the 50-year, 50-year arc. Wow very neat but but just the time period April to, or beginning of June 1969 is the War Games people will associate Chair of the Autons with 1971 because episode one aired on the 2nd of January they weren't filming on the 1st of January they were filming that uh, that started filming on the 15th of September 1970 so at most because taking the context that in the Patrick Trentner they were filming the episodes even probably till about the very end like a week before mm. so War Games would have been filmed then April, May of nineteen sixty-nine, but Terror of the Autons* in September seventy. So at most you've got fifteen months. Mm-hmm. And back history, even to the Terror of the Autons*, the script originally called the *Spray of Death* was commissioned on the second of June of the seventy. So at most, again, you've got a, a year. Mm-hmm. Second of yeah, second of June, one year. So I can see, as I do, I can. Even if I didn't think the master, the war chief is the master, I can understand completely why people think so because there's such a. There's just not enough time, I think, and because people were involved in both eras, there's just not enough time to forget about who the war chief mm-hmm. was. At the least, I would think that consciously or unconsciously, just as like Gene Roddenberry in Star Trek created the character Trillane in the original series. If anyone sees the, the episode of The Squire of Gothis, if you're if you're not aware of that, it's just a, a powerful character that the Enterprise Captain Kirk faces. He also created the character Q 20-some years later. John Delancey, who plays the character of Q, even he has said, he's never said they're the same character, but he has uh, on occasion, and I've seen the, the interview myself. Even, I haven't even met John Delancey and he said this. He said, I I, I feel that Roddenberry, whether consciously or not, was mining at least the character of Trelaine when he created Q. In fact, and he th- and he has said he thinks they're the same Q, or at least really mm-hmm. In other words, Trelaine is a Q. That's my personal opinion, too, of um at the least, if, if they're never called the same character, I, I'm convinced that at the least, um, um, Terran Sticks, when he was involved with the creation of Master, was at least unconsciously mining the character of the War Chief. But mm. I uh, I absolutely personally think that they're the same character. They just, um, oh, of course, because Prouten has to have a Master story. Yeah. <laughs> Why
1: not? Yeah, and there's absolutely nothing to contradict that uh they're, they're both characters that have got a past with the doctor that that he recognizes them um and they act in a very similar way don't they is the other thing uh even the operandi of teaming up with other aliens you know that kind mm-hmm. of thing and then and then try, you know plotting to betray them and that kind of thing yeah
0: well yes and, and uh one final maybe not final necessarily but one other point is that a lot of people will say i, I can see this a lot of people say okay if, if they're not the same they say oh because the war chief is killed at the spoilers 50 mm. years later at the <laughs> end of the war games and i think well there is such a thing as regeneration that was established already in the series yeah so there's that there is a novel called time Exodus, which features the war chief, written by T- uh, terran six in 1991 um but at no point does that novel ever s- reference the master mm. Um it comes from a time where people were a lot more strict 1991 oh, time was have to meet in order but if you look at big finish now they're meeting so often out of order that that's that's no longer mm-hmm. an argument that in my opinion holds although ironically enough, I think that time was should meet in order yeah. um they said so even in television series in the end of time the point is there's that novel but they never explicitly say there's a time we'll called the war chief there's a time we'll called the masters. Oh, there's this guy called the war chief it could be out of order there is a novel divided loyalties which has a dream sequence which identifies a couple different Time Lords that may be the war chief and the Master, but it's a dream sequence. It's a fifth Doctor novel with the Social Trainmaker. There's the, tar- the Dark Path written by David A. McKinty, which features Coche, who's a character who's meant to be the, I suppose, I've, um, someone that looks like Delgado and becomes the Master. The big irony there. And David A. McKinty, I know him a little bit, and he's said this publicly on forums, he thinks that the war chief is the Master. Mm. The only reason why he made it Delgado is because time War Exodus had been written. And if it hadn't, uh, then it Cochet would have been, a, he said, he told me this himself, Cochet would have been an untelevised version of the Master who would have regenerated into Edward Brayshaw, the actor who played the War Chief. And then if he had extended it further, the War Chief version of the Master, Edward Brayshaw, well, he would have had stories set in season seven. He would have tried, would have tried to pitch stories mm. prior to Terror of the Auton. So set in season. Portrait's first year hmm. with Bray Shah as the master. Um, I will say just that I, uh, I I won't give away too much, but I, I want to okay. talk about this chair of the autons itself. But I will just say that um, I'm doing the final game. I'm also planning to do, in conjunction with my editor, um, other stories. And one of them is there are a couple stories, and one, of the, uh, uh, one is called Bandages, and the other is called The Veiled Memory. And The Veiled Memory is my tribute to David A. McKinty in that. And I'll just say it, that the uh, Edward Brayshaw's master shows up immediately after Spearhead from Space. <laughs> and uh, I I figured, I figured some people said, oh, there'd be too many hoops to jump through to connect them together. And I thought, well, because you'd have to, if you have Delgado show up, and so say, I, I was the war chief. And I thought the easiest way to get around that is to have Brayshaw show up and say, I'm the master.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There you are. So cool stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to make those connections and bridge that season seven era. Yeah. You
1: know? That's cool. So, it's as, a lot of fun. as well as the the first story for the master, there's a lot of other firsts in this one because obviously it introduces Joe yes. Grant, Mike Yates, mm-hmm. uh, and the mm-hmm. first time we hear Greyhound and Trap One as as the unit call signs mm-hmm. as well. Which, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's yes, you're right. Particularly you know, of interest see, to me, obviously with the name of the podcast. So, uh, yeah, well, yeah. So.
0: well, well done. Well done. <laughs> you have your you have your origin story here, Terror of the Autons. Yeah. It is a. I was when I watched all the I watched the Pertree era, minus Planet of the Spiders, to prepare for the final game, mm. I was struck by that Terror of the Autumn is a bit of a soft reboot of the Pertwee era. I'm, I don't i do not know all the details of it. I suspect half of that, maybe a good amount of that, is because Season 7 is either produced directly by someone other than Barry Letts, Derek mm. Sherwin, Spearhead from Space, or those are scripts that were commissioned by Derek Sherwin. Mm. Barry Letts produced directly the other, the, you know, Silurian, Master's Death, Inferno. But they weren't scripts that he would have chosen, well, I'm sure he might have chosen anyway, but they weren't ones that he chose. So he's already kind of um, because a lot of people might think, oh, it was Barry less that decided to put, you know, Exile the Master to the Doctor to Earth in terms of production-wise. No, it was Derek Sherwin and his mm-hmm. team. Remember, Derek Sherwin produced um, the War Games, he pr- which begins the Exile. He produces Spirit of Space, which formalizes it. Um, so I imagine season seven is in a weird way an extension of the Derek – kind of a mesh of Derek Sherwin and Barry Letts. Mm-hmm. It's really not until probably Tear of the Autons that Barry Letts fully comes into play and say, okay, what are the stories that we want? What are the stories that what are we going to commission? He and Terrence Sticks. And therefore we get the master, Joe Grant, mm-hmm. Mike Yates, uh, who's given a back history himself as being there probably as far back as Spirit from Space. It's just a slightly different feel of, of new unit, uniforms it has a different uniform style in that one um yeah there's just a lot of things um a new um new laboratory for the doctor yeah yeah other things you're right there are a lot of firsts in that story
1: yeah and Barry Letts directed this one as well to help establish the, the new style he was trying to bring in as well so uh there's yes. a lot of CSO, which is one of the sort of uh, one of his passions, isn't it? It's one of the hallmarks of uh, <laughs> of, of Barillet's era. So, um, but I think there's some really great results with that. Especially the, uh, I love the fact that because normally with the the doctor's laboratory you don't see any windows or anything like that, but it feels like they're taking the yes. time there because you've got that really nice kind of coastal view out of the window. And <laughs> when they throw the bomb out and stuff like that, and it, it drops into the docks below, um, there's a lot yes. of nice details like that where they've. Uh, you know, where instead of having to go on location or build a set in a particular way, so it's uh, it's great that he's pushing the boundaries of technology. I think you know it was quite an early early adopter of it.
0: Yes, I mean I think a, com- a comparable thing might have been, and I don't know much about as much about the story, but I know maybe a story that earlier that pushed those technological boundaries was the arc, a late season three Hartnell story, because they mm. were able to, I think, film. Something about, I, I'd have to look at the history of this, I'm not as quite as familiar with the technical side of the Hartnell years, but uh, I know that there was, not CSO necessarily, but um, but um, sequential happened in that story. They were able to film, you know, scene by scene. Um, some of the filming, there there were some revolutions in, in uh, technology which allowed them to do kind of filming, um, almost like watching ca- something on a camera screen. You know, instead of maybe... Cutting out an image or something, and, and then inserting it some of, of of other footage and putting onto, let's say, oh, a monitor screen. They can actually put something onto the monitor screen. So you, there was that, and then so like five years, four years later, you get like you say, CSO, and there's a lot of CSO. You're right. There's the CSO of the of. I'm assuming it's the Thames. I'm assuming that's where Unit HQ is in that story when they throw the bomb out, you know, of the, of the window, I don't know. Does it ever say?
1: No, I don't think it does. I thought it looked more like it was on the coast. Like it was, uh, like it was the sea, but I'm not Must sure. Might've been. Yeah, might it's, have been. It's ambiguous, yeah.
0: Well, you're right. Yeah. Cause you can hear if you listen, if you listen and I, it might, might just be, you know, the background sounds of the studio, but you can hear what sound like ships or or horns, you know, you know, from the outside. It's a nice little soundscape. Um, but CSO, yeah, outside. There's probably some people have argued maybe too much because of the scene where this man, um, Mr. Farrell Senior, the uh, retired owner of the plastics factory, mm-hmm. the master um, commandeers, he's when he's killed by this automaton, you know, doll. There's a shot of his wife's reaction. She's scared because she can hear him dying, and it's a CSO shot of the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It, it was. It, it, it you can. I think you can tell. And it. It's just the times. I mean, this has been. You know, filmed and edited in 1970s, so you can mm. see the blue outline around her. Yeah, but uh, but it's it still it's very cool because it, it's like a half a second of a shot, so it's nothing. But it's like wow. Uh, and it's
1: I good. guess in those days it was it was a case of well, do we build a kitchen set for one very brief yeah. scene, or, or you know, we use this technology it's going to be way cheaper, sort of thing. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah.
0: Yes, it makes, it makes me know who's where they. Would have taken the shot. Whose kitchen it was? Was it a
1: kitchen set for some other series? Was it someone's house? I don't know. But yeah, and, and even for the the shrunken scientist that uh, that the doctor finds mm-hmm. in the in the radio telescope, it, it's CSO as well. They've got the um, yes. the actual actor uh, kind of slumped in the box and stuff. And it, uh, that, I think that is more effective than having a doll, which you get in some of the other yes. stories. Uh, I mm-hmm. think from sort of the Deadly Assassin and stuff. The uh,
0: yes I think I'm right in
1: saying that they use well, a doll instead it, it is more effective than that I think
0: it is I mean, you have different producers at that point and maybe they maybe they didn't have the budget at that point or who knows but hmm. uh, maybe for that story maybe they wanted to well it makes some sense because they had the, the Matrix stuff maybe they allocated the budget for the Matrix scenes in yeah. Deadly Sense Part 3 but no you're right it's it's absolutely right it's very effective
1: Gooch is his name Definitely, Gooch yeah. is the scientist yeah. that's killed by the, by the master it's um She's.
0: I remember, I remember. him. He looks like an egghead. I hate to say it, but he is a bald man. Yeah. And he has kind of a, 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 an oval-shaped head, pointy chin, and a rather domed, cre- you know, top of his head. Uh, and, and he has of hair on the side, but he is bald. And yes, what I like about that moment, that scene is, is Robert Holmes. You know, he was a very good author, writer, and that he could. You get to know Gooch just a little, little. Not of character, he's talking about his wife giving him. Um, hard-boiled
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> And how he hates them. He hates there He says, not only the, the attacks they give on my
1: indigestion, but they're aesthetically boring. Yeah. Or something like that, he says. And then, and then his Phillips,
0: the, the the research, his superior says, speaking of eggs, I want a whole scan of the hydrogen line or something. And I'm not <laughs> sure what that joke
1: means. Yeah. But um, he... <laughs> But you get to know these characters, even though they're going to be
0: gone. If, if you know, my fingers; they're going to be gone in about three seconds. And from the masters watching from the CSO background of the uh, radio telescope, too, it's 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 very effective. Especially that scene with how Delgado's playing the characters.
1: Mm. It's,
0: we can talk about that if you want, but it, it's something else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He 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 just inhabits the role immediately, doesn't he? This uh, he's he although he's in every story this season that. Uh, I think probably he, he more humor maybe comes into it as time goes on, but the menace sure. and the presence that he has is right there from, from, this first, from his first appearance. Yeah.
0: No, you're right. He's, um, when, he, when you first show up, the, the story structure of Care of the Autons is I, I, it's not necessarily unique in the it's never done anywhere else, but it may be unique in the classic series. And I'm not thinking of any other example of, of what I'm about to mention, which is a parallel story structure. The doctor and the master don't meet until about halfway through part four. Mm-hmm. The doctor knows the master's around about half, maybe three quarters, two thirds of the way, halfway, whatever, through part one, because the, the bowler, hat, incognito, time lord, shows up and talks to him and warns him about the master's arrival. But even before the doctor knows the master's around, you've got scenes with the master scenes with the Doctor and, and, and an associate characters: the Master in Pharaoh, the plastics factory, the Doctor in his labo- lab- laboratory with unit. And it's like you've got two bases, two bases of operations. And they are inhabiting their domains. And their domains are pretty secure. And they are almost totally, they're almost totally separate for most of the story. Uh, so that's a neat, neat little thing. So it allows you to get to know the Master quite well as a character. It really is established. it was not just a villain of the week or a villain of the story, but no, he's... He's, he, we've, you, maybe we haven't seen him, even if, you know, I doubt that too many people were thinking, well, they might have been thinking of The Warchief, but no matter what, they haven't seen Roger Delgado mm-hmm. It's really setting him up as someone that you want to get to know, that you're able to get to know. A couple interesting points, at least of his first story, his first scene, when he, The Menace, like you said, he, um, one thing that always struck me, even when the first time watching Charity Terror of the is... His whole the Masters, uh, you have the circus scenes, and then the, his TARDIS appears as a forest boss. Fans, by this point, would know even the series is relatively in his adolescence. Okay, that's a TARDIS. They probably know it's a TARDIS. They think mm. something's weird. The sound is enough. It sounds different, but they they probably know it's a TARDIS. They don't know whose it is. When he comes out, and he opens the door, and he kind of jumps out and lands, it's interesting. Delgado was fifty two There, 52 and a half. But he's still able to land on, on you know, from a, probably about six feet in the air, land very smoothly, stand straight, slam that door with, with, with very, you know, mm. no waste of movement at all. So he is moving very, very perfectly. And the way that he then walks and strides forward, he's looking around, looking up, looking around to the sides, checking his environment. Very quick movements, but very, Smooth, too. And he stands, puts his hands behind his back, and then the character he says, who the heck, who the heck are you? <laughs> well, <laughs> watch how Delgado turns around. It's just this, it's just this quick three-quarter turn. And you're, my first time watching that happen, you know, I've started kind of taking it back. It's just not like, oh, you know, there's no wasted movement. He mm-hmm. just spins. And, and, and you know, okay, this is some type of weird alien. Yeah. And then, of course, he says the Immortal lines. So I'm usually referred to as the Master. But uh, so all that, how he controls Rossini, you know, he derates all the say he needs him. that wonderful, this vice grip mm-hmm. brings Rossini to his knees. And then the first hypnotism, beautifully done, there's almost nothing said. He doesn't talk too much, the Master, in these scenes. And then one other thing I'll just briefly say is when we go to the Space Museum, it's this other weird thing he does that, that maybe you don't often see the master do. Instead of doing some stealthy, pain, he just smashes the glass case and uh, takes up a nesting, uh globe. It's it's very uh, it's just the music playing, just bam, bam, two hits, takes it out and gone. It's very interesting,
1: yeah, very striking. Yeah, he's um, he's he's fantastic, and he? it's interesting that with the hypnotism. He, like he doesn't say that much. It is like he's projecting his will, isn't it? It's not hypnotism as we'd understand it it's um, you know, it's quite different and the way he projects his will into them he looks into their eyes uh, and then the idea that once they've been away from him for a while that it starts to wear off yeah. that it's more like telepathy isn't it than hypnotism or mind control I guess
0: exactly I mean I mean I watched um, Charlie Autumns again um, when you and I decided to do Chair of the Autumns for this podcast I watched it again I watched it in preparation for Charlie the, um, the final game then no, I just watched it on its own and I was still struck by that scene where he, where he's summoned the, the next conscious in the um, just after he's first appeared, and he's, and the music's very good that that low. Oh my god, you can't hear me say it because it's so low. i was kind like, mouthing the music, but but it's beautiful. It's a scary kind of synthesis, whatever, synthetic sound. But when he, there are a couple of things in that scene that you know that again that strike me. I'll talk one thing that comes later, which is the hypnotism. When he hypnotizes Professor Phillips, again, doesn't say anything, but he's just radiating mm. menace and projecting just this this presence. When Phillips comes in the room, he's all mad. He's saying, who are you? And then Delgado just slowly advances towards him with the r- music rising. His eyes are, those golden eyes are blazing. And he is just staring Phillips right in the eyes, advancing, advancing slowly. And we stop with a close of his face and it shifts to the of course, what the doctor says, beautifully, mm. very simple in itself, but beautifully done, maybe even then hinting what their relationship was between the two characters. But one other thing that I want to mention, maybe we can talk about this too, is, is not talking much. Delgado, mm. at least, I don't know what it is in that scene where he's, he's moving the dials in circles to move the, uh, the radio telescopes yeah. to, bring, to kind of summon the nesting process. He's not saying a thing. Now, there's no one there. Of course not. But there's something about the way he looks and there's this hooded look in his eyes, this mm-hmm. intense burning look, that you don't even show, see him as Delgado portrayed too much often because, you know, he's often talking to charming. But this is not a charming master here. This is not a gentlemanly version of the master. This, he, I wouldn't say a thug, not at all, but this is a very dangerous mm-hmm. looking version of the master. Very. I, I just want to say that because it's
1: just it almost exists right there. It's very neat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the couple of lines that he has when when they're talking about um, uh, I've forgotten the character's name, but the the guy who visits the factory and gets asphyxiated mm-hmm. by the chair. Ah, Mister uh, McDermott. Yeah, Mister McDermott. Yeah, McDermott. Yeah, the uh, the Northern Irish guy, and he says um when afterwards they're talking about, he saying he just sat there and slipped away. Uh, it's it's so, so great, but it's just so full of uh, yeah, kind of double meaning and and, and uh, menace. It's, it's brilliant,
0: isn't it? Oh yeah, uh, she, yeah, she does it well. I mean, so, uh, another actor—I wouldn't say necessarily a lesser actor, but another actor or another director, like Barry, you know, Barry Letts like you said. Funny enough, not credited as a director because he couldn't be producer and director at the same time, I guess, for rules. But um, they may have played up more of the humor. Yeah. In that double meaning. Oh, he, he just slipped away or something, and then you might think of that, and then and, 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 that, and that might be equally um, uh, acceptable, appropriate. But he doesn't. He doesn't ignore the humor, possible humor of the line, but he doesn't play it with humor. He just plays it more like almost mock regret. Not even mock regret, because he doesn't play. He doesn't play it up as a pantomime. He doesn't mm. or in the sense of he doesn't overplay the emotions. Just yes, he he just sat in this chair and slipped away.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and, and that's all. And yet you're like, oh. He, and it, you know what it shows to me? He doesn't care. Yeah. He doesn't care at all that someone just died. He, he just killed somebody in a horribly brutal way. You know, the the way I say he's asphyxiated, but what I imagine is that when that chair is asphyxiating him, I imagine not just covering his mouth, I imagine the plastic actually going down his throat. Yeah. Because it looks like it However, they did the effect, maybe in real life, maybe someone had an arm and maybe pushing down on his face, or, or maybe it was his own arm, I don't know.
1: But it looks like the stuff is just pressing against him. Yeah. The, 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 the effect actually it's, is uh, it gives quite, um, it looks great, and it was actually quite simple the way they did it was they started with the chair, with the chair deflated over his face, mm-hmm. then they inflated uh-huh. it and then reversed the footage so that it looks like it's pressing down on him. Uh, this is on the, you know, the, the, uh, the info text they call it on the DVD. Um, I thought oh, nice. it was a really, really interesting way of doing it. So he was acting in reverse, being asphyxiated mm. by the chair. Um, but yeah, like <coughs> quite a simple technique, but it's really, really effective, isn't it? Like you say it looks like it's physically pressing down on him, and uh, and probably you know, say so going to his mouth and filling his, his airways and things. Yeah. Oh yes, it's
0: it's. it's um... It's it's fair. It's it's. it's I've, I've heard that that was that was a death scene, that was very very scrutinized by by and and there was some concern that it might get sent to Think this is too graphic and too brutal. But uh-huh. I think it, I'm glad that it it went through because it very effectively shows what the master is capable of doing. And and again that when he plays it, it says he just slipped away, it just shows he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. In fact, the only thing he seems to care about is oh this um this. It's very clumsy. You can see how this process has got to be fixed. And then yeah. he, says that wonderful line. <laughs> what, anyway, he says, oh, I think it's very effective, says Rexfell. What yards of to plastic to, um, to accomplish that, which could be uh, done by a few inches? A few inches, yes. Um, the human body has a basic... Oh, I'll try to say this. The human body has a basic weakness, one which I should exploit to assist in destruction of humanity. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: it's, it's, a, it's beautiful. He's, it's almost like he's gleeful in the sense of, I can do better.
1: Mm-hmm yeah I can
0: kill
1: something <laughs> and and robert holmes i yes. uh, was really in um probably had a great time coming up with all the different ways that plastic could be used in this you, the telephone cord that um that nearly strangles the yes. doctor and all that kind of stuff there's uh there's there's and and then the policeman bit is is um, mm. regarded as uh he's one of the great cliffhangers you know quite rightly, I think, because um, they've just been rescued from the, the circus folk who are attacking them by the police, and you think, oh, mm-hmm. they've got away. And then uh, and the policeman turns around and the doctor pulls the mask off. It's terrific. And then he's close that oh, yeah. like, brilliant scene where the, the policeman, Orton, falls down the cliff. Uh, mm-hmm. Stunman does that and then immediately stands up and starts coming again. Such a great shot. Oh. Really, really good, yeah. And what
0: made that? And what they? And I, this, at least, I know on the back. I didn't know about the, the reverse um, of the chair. What? But I know about the filming of that scene. That was wonderful fortune that we had it because it, that, because whoever was driving the car actually it was the son that was Terry Walsh who was playing the autumn. He was actually hit by the car and thrown down the, yeah. <laughs> and thrown down the hill. They just happened to catch the shot. So he actually was hit by the car, just nothing knocked him down and knocked him down the hill. Mm-hmm. But they just happened to catch that wonderful shot. And the fact that he got up means it's practically a, a miracle that he wasn't bravely injured. But, yeah. And so it just shows perfect a perfect thing that could probably, one way or the other could have resulted in, oh, we'll have to film it again, or he's dead. Or telling Terry Walsh is dead. Yeah. But since they it film it, it's a, wonderfully, magically effective. And then that scene where he stands up and you realize, this shows you a powerful knot on it. Mm-hmm. It's just solid plastic. It's very hard to... Especially movable solid plastic, very tough stuff. When yeah. you think about it, very light, very durable. It shows it wonderfully well.
1: Yeah, brilliant, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Oh yes, oh yes. Okay.
1: I, I, I think it's it's an excellent, it's a wonderful story. It um, it gives like you said, it gives us the master at. Um, it gives us um, Joe Grant. Do you have, what do you think about Joe Grant? in her first appearance? By the way. Yeah. Again, she uh, Katie Manning just nails the role in her first story doesn't she she's brilliant um from the, the the first time she appears and the nearly ruins the doctor's experiment and all that kind of stuff uh and there's some some great behind the scenes stuff about her casting as well like the stories you, you see on the you had to talk about at conventions and, and you see on the dvds where she for her first audition she turned up and she'd forgotten the glasses she couldn't really read the script so she was just taking guesses at it and, and ad-libbing and stuff and then uh, the uh there's just her general sort of like clumsiness because it's not about um, the the stuntman nearly being injured. She uh, she hurt her ankle on this, I think. And uh, you can see it. Well, you yeah. can
0: see the. I'm pretty sure you can see that moment. It's caught on film. She's yeah. running it, and you hear go out. Yeah. No, no, they don't play it up, but uh, they they filmed around it. But she, yeah, you can. I think they caught, caught that moment on screen where they because she she goes out, but then she doesn't say, "I hurt my ankle." Yeah. That makes me think. That makes you think. Oh, that's probably her actually hurting your ankle, but they filmed around it.
1: It's neat. Yeah. See, I,
0: I like. Um, I like. Uh, Joe was great from the start. Uh, you know, you miss Liz. Mm-hmm. Um. Because Liz, again, in that season, the seven-eight divides first companion, only companion that doesn't have a goodbye scene. Hmm. First companion to that point that had, didn't have a TARDIS scene I'm talking about Liz, of course. Um. She has since in the, you know their stories, but. um so there is kind of that – I think they handled it very well in that, you know, people wanting to – expecting to see Liz are maybe shocked, like, who's Joe? And it's not so much maybe – if not who's Joe, it's more like, where's Liz? Mm. And they just say, oh, she went back to Cambridge. It's uh, it's kind of created
1: a little continuity gap that several people have tried to fill in different ways. It's almost like the many departures of Liz Shaw. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think there's even a song that some, some, some group um, – me called. Where have they taken you, Elizabeth Shaw? <laughs> or where they done, what what are they done with you? What are they done with you, Elizabeth Shaw? Or something like that. It's um, it's very sweet because Liz was so ahead of her time. Again, a Derek Sherwin probably cared. Oh, she would have been had to be. Mm. Um, because Phoenix Six was done by Derek Sherwin. So again, we did have the soft reboot. The first companion that's really cast by Barry Letts.
1: Yeah, and in this one and, as well, you um, get you get more of her skills in this one, don't you? Like the, uh, yes. the escapology when they're on the bus, and she's able to um, get out of the, the handcuffs or whatever. There's uh, there's a there's a bit more. It's not really made much of later on the the sort of the, yeah. the training that she's had. Uh, but there's a yes, you're right. one, yeah. yeah. No, you're right. She,
0: she's not. She's not um, quote unquote just a screamer. She mm. she is more of a screamer than Shaw was. She's more of a, she's not a scientist by any means. She's not a, she's not, in, let's say, intelligent in that way. She's not a book smart girl, but she's not a, a fool. She's not useless, not at all. She has her skills. Yeah. You're, it's true, though, that um, a little bit like maybe Ryan in Series 11, you know, the 13th house Spain maybe has this distraction that's largely forgotten in later episodes. I would, I would say that's more to the detriment of Ryan than maybe Liz, uh, it should be Joe not exploring, exploring her escapology. In that one, you know, you could have situations, nothing against the character Ryan, but more like, in the case of Jill, you can have stories where maybe escapology, at her level, I can untie these knots, mm-hmm. might not be possible, maybe she's behind a force field, maybe she's in a, a, a roomless, a doorless room, yeah. whereas Ryan is like, his dyspraxia, you should see him tripping more, I don't know, but I don't want to critique that. But what I'm saying is that, yeah, it is maybe a little bit of a shame that you didn't see more of it. They mentioned Time Monster, she when she and the Doctor are chained up in the dungeon on, at, at Atlantis, and she mm-hmm. says, I can't get out of these. She says, I'm trying, but I can't get out mm-hmm. of, these, of these restraints. But that makes sense. They're probably metal and heavy, and who knows. But yeah, it's, it's, they at least establish her character very quickly, who she is. Yeah. Slightly mumbling, w- Very eager. Wants to help. Will go against orders. Gets herself into trouble. Hypnotized by the Master. Uh, hurts her ankle in real life yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun um, so she works well and then of course her interaction with Mikey Yates they establish that kind of flirtatious feeling too and of course you know, Mikey Yates
1: first appearing you know, mm-hmm. what do you, I was going to ask you what do you think about him in his first appearance yeah it's um, I, from what I understand from, from kind of doing a bit of background I think this might be in the the complete history book they originally envisaged him as a bigger character like almost as another companion trying to sort of recapture that sort of Jamie and Zoe or Jamie and Victoria dynamic uh, and mm-hmm. like you say that kind of flirtation with Joe Grant which doesn't really go very far and I think it was because John Pertwee and Katie Manning developed such a rapport so quickly um, yes. that there was less need for, for that character um, it's true and yeah. here he's much more prominent than say Sergeant Benton whereas later on they're mm-hmm. fairly fairly equal footing aren't they I think um, he got some of the brigadiers' lines in this because um, Nicholas Courtney wasn't very well for some of the filming of this story, so they they yeah. some of his lines. So he's got slightly bigger part as well than uh, than he would have done.
0: Yes, I've heard that. Um, I've, I've I've heard that he had that Nicholas Courtney was suffering maybe a, maybe anxiety or a panic attack mm. or or general maybe uh, um, Ill, poor health for that filming. There are some scenes. I think in the later couple episodes, uh, I think during the quarry, some of the shots in the quarry scene when the, with the policeman, the towns I think there are a couple of shots where you can see the, the brigadier, quote unquote, I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers, is there, but um, it's a stunt man. he shot yeah. from behind. Yeah. Certainly, I think some of the location shots for the, the climax battle, at the radio telescope part four, definitely a stuntman is playing the brigadier because it's in those shots. It's just. A, It's often turning to someone shot from behind saying, don't trust him, Brigadier, it's a trip. You never see the Brigadier's face, which is, given how prominent the Brigadier was in those seasons, it's practically unheard of. But it balances because in the last scene, probably shot at a different time where they're back in the laboratory, the Brigadier's there. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I can believe Mike got lines. I will say watch, when I watched, not the second time for this podcast, but share the autopsy in context of watching the Pertwee era in preparation for the final game. Even, even noting that maybe his the character of Mike Yates was not ultimately as developed or realized as they may have intended as a maybe a second companion, a male companion to the doctor, and then if, and a, and a love interest, or at least maybe a, an interest or something to something to Jill Grant. It is striking how big of a part, right from the start, Mike Yates gets. Richard Franklin gets. He has a large, a massive role in *Charity he has a massive role with the... with a with a. Um, a stunt sequence in a motorcycle in *Mind of Evil*.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, he has a, ver- a very so those two stories certainly. Those two stories certainly, he has a. I would say he has he has a leading role in those mm. two stories. He has also a good a role, maybe slightly more equal footing with Benton in *Claws of Axis*. Mm. He's not in *Tumbling Space*. It's, it's probably at the end of that season that you get to have, that they equalize him and Benton more. But certainly, his first two stories, he is very much a leading man. Yeah, and, and through but even so, throughout because throughout the Pertwee era, meaning equal footing with Benton, but they still tended to give Richard Franklin the stronger subplot, the character-driven subplot, um, the um, maybe, not so much time Monsters, but definitely Green Death, definitely, of course, Invasion of Dinosaurs. Yeah. And it's like he becomes a, he regains that leading man's stature in his last three stories, Green Death, mm-hmm. Invasion of Dinosaurs. Plan of Spiders. It's very, very interesting that way. He, he clearly was, I guess they just wanted to at least give a sense that this is a um, not just um, a, a background character or a, a third unit guy. He is a major uh, player in this era.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that, isn't it? Because he's, for the classic series, he's a character that does have a bit of an arc like that, whereas yes. the Brigadier doesn't really change all that much um, in the Poe era. Um, no. where, but Mike Gates goes through that, uh, the Operation Golden Age stuff, um, yes. uh, and then the Green Death, you know, where he's possessed and everything, there's there's, uh, there, there's an arc there and some, some interesting stuff that happens to him in a way that was unusual for the time, so he's a bit more for the for the actor to get his teeth into. And it was interesting, it's the, interesting. Yeah. the part was originally offered to Ian Martyr, who yes. um, wanted it, but then didn't realize it was a recurring part, um, and he had mm-hmm. commitments elsewhere. So uh, that would have been mm-hmm. interesting if um, if we'd had Ian Martyr in the poet era as uh, as Yates, I think.
0: Yes, it would have been because the closest we have is, of course, the role of the of the of the, of the, of the 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 um, not a naval officer, but maybe a ship, a ship um, officer, mm. a crew officer in Carnival um, oh, um, Monsters. Yeah. Uh, so we get him there. So at least he gets to have scenes with poetry. But I'm trying to. Had it been, yeah, had had Ian Marter played that role, he would. I, I imagine just 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 based on how he plays Harry, I imagine the role probably would have been much probably much more like what we see with Harry. Because at at their base, Yates and Harry Sullivan are not Mikey and Harry Sullivan are not terribly different characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but they but the actors are, and so they play them differently. I imagine you know, Harry probably would have been more, a little more. It's also maybe denigrating, so maybe something more a figure of fun. Mm-hmm. He might they might have poked fun at him a little bit more. They might because as they do with Harry, certainly I think Percy probably would have. You know, they they would have had a lot of chance to do that. That would have been neat. Uh, um, yeah, what the what ifs of, of Doctor. Yeah,
1: Harry. yeah, that's it. Uh, it's uh, I, I feel like this is. This, it, I love season seven, but. The, the tone, like you are saying, does change a lot here, and it, it, it sort of the coziness starts, doesn't it, with the unit family? There's you, you never get the same conflict between the doctor and the brigadier again, which obviously was its height in the Silurians, but, but you got a lot yes. more in se- season seven. It, it settles down a lot more, and everyone talks about it as the unit family, and it's uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, that, and then having the master as the recurring villain as well is uh, you know it's um, sort of more formulaic, I guess, but
0: uh, yes. Yes, I believe that. No more formulaic. Um, because the, the, the characters of season seven, the third Doctor, is still pretty much the same throughout. With the exception, I would say, of *Sphere in Space because he's almost... It's a little... Not, and this is not a critique of John Pertrude's performance in, in that story, but he is playing, in my opinion, a little bit differently than any of his other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, he settles, I think, in my opinion, pretty well by Silurians. The only slight thing that he does weird in Silurians is that he, he strips down to, like, his, his T-shirt. So you have a second... So the second and final appearance is his tattoo on his forearm. Yeah. Uh, that he got when he, during his time in the Navy. Like my grandfather. My, my grandfather was in the Navy in, in World War II, and he had tattoos. Much larger on all of his forearms. He had much larger tattoos. Right. um But, um, but um, yes, uh, when you think about it, uh, poetry's pretty well-established by Stylurians. But, you know, again, that antagonism season seven with him and the Brigadier, just a pretty much... Mostly in that one story, but um, but Liz Shaw, I think, is a big part of it, because she's not a—people um, think of, like, Sarah Jane being ahead of her time. Uh, I can't—watching I Liz Shaw, honestly, regains an amazing—a appreci- modern appreciation for her. If you think Sarah Jane is ahead of her time in 1973, Liz Shaw was pretty much ahead of the era in 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she's not a screamer. She is n- Yeah, You have to think of Terry the I'm mentioning her as much as I am because you almost have to think of Terry the as Liz in absence. A little, little bit. And Liz was not a screamer. Liz was a scientist. She was level-headed. And she wasn't uh, mean. But she didn't take uh, push-around orders much from the previous. So you could tell it was. It, they never played up into too much except... I think it, where they played up into it was more spirit, hip, and space. The first two episodes were virtually almost absent. Mm-hmm. So there's that tension between a break. And, they're almost the stars of at least the first half of the show, Courtney and Nathan's Courtney, Carolyn, John. They really are. Um fact, they really are, in those first two episodes at least. Um, so you have that conflict there. But then here, aside from maybe... Joe's more like the, 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 the younger sister. Like the little kids. If it, it, Liz Shaw's like the maybe younger sister, to, uh, younger sister maybe to like the doctor or the brigadier. Then Joe is a kid sister. Mm-hmm. She still is a bit willful, but she, she agrees more. She says, okay, she's not totally quote-unquote obedient, but she, she doesn't put up nearly as much of a fight as, as Liz did and would have had she kept going. So she, in a way, Liz, if you have that coziness, Liz has to, I hate to say, go if you want a cozy environment. Um, or the least they would have had to retool Liz's character too. So, you're right, the coziness of there. Benton's there too, of course, too, but ben, I don't want to ignore Benton. But there's not too much to say about Benton in the Autonnes, is there? He's not even in part three.
1: No, he he sort of arrives delivering messages more, that kind of thing, doesn't he? And, uh, yeah, kind of uh, put a little bit of exposition about, about what they found out um, in, in terms of searching yeah. for the master, yeah.
0: No, he has probably his best moment in the part, part two when they throw the bomb out that the master, that Joe almost released the master sent. <laughs> and and, uh, and they throw him into the, the water, the river, the ocean, whatever it is, mm. wherever they are, and uh, up the coast, let's say, their uh, unit HQ's coast, he says, oh, they they're going to some complaints about that doctor. Yeah. I just <laughs> that Doctor. box had been tied. wouldn't anybody around again." he complains He says, yes sir, I mean no sir. It's, 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 <laughs> that's, his, that's probably the moment you remember Benson. Benson's always great, but he is a minor, he really is a minor character. mm uh, which is kind of a shame because everyone else has a lot of um, material, but they, he's kind of a minor character in this story, so there's not much to say about him. I like, well, ask you this: What do you think about maybe the Brigadier in Terror of the Autons*? With the soft reboot.
1: Yeah, he's uh, it's uh, like we said before. They they all get u- new uniforms, don't they? I think the Brigadier looks yes. uh, he looks a lot better in the the more traditional British Army uniform, the the peak cap and everything like that. Um, yes. he's, I mean he's, I think he's great in everything. Nicholas Courtney. Um, the, the Brigadier is always uh, always excellent. Uh, and it's nice when you get the scene where he says, um, uh, the, the, I think Mike Yates says, um, I'll go with you, Doctor, and the Brigadier goes, no, I'll go, I'm, I'm not completely death bound yet. Uh, and it's nice getting oh, the, yeah. the Doctor and the Brigadier going off together to do something which, which you don't see all that yeah. often and uh, investigating, and then they have a bit of a run-in with an auton, don't they?
0: Yes, part, it was, yeah, part three. They have a lot of good... Um, there's that scene in the in the doctor's lab, lab uh, in part three. There's a scene where they go to the plastics factory, mm-hmm. and it's just the two of them, and it's one of how well they interact, you know. Yeah. And there's, and there's no real sense of them, of you know, any downplaying or or, or... the doctor might say that in front of um, Joe and other things. But there's something I really like. There's something I really like, and it happens that maybe a parallel between Charlie Autumn and the Damons. The doctor's black, you know, pretty at times. Pretty, so, despite what I said, he's pretty kind of, at the least, harshly teasing the brigadier. Mm-hmm. Like in the scene where the brigadier in part three, at the beginning, is saying, seven, you know, the, the autons are about, eight, they're being led by a telegine, no, you the master, I think he has seven. He gets to pretend. Where was I? Ten, sir, says. Because you know, the doctor's kind of just, you know, undercutting the brigadier in every stance. Um, and so there's a sense of, oh, I don't have to listen to you. But then you have the demons and Joe. There's a scene. It's where maybe showing the completion of that little minor character arc, or at least, um, book ending, is where Joe um, blasts the brigadier. She says, the brigadier's an idiot because he was going to ball, he, the brigadier's outside, you know, the, the, the adult heat shield, and he was going to blast it with missiles. And, the, and and Joe says, the brigadier's an idiot. What's he thinking? And, and, and the Dr. Chass sites are pretty, not meanly, but harshly, Joe, the brigadier has a lot on his mind, and he's, and he's kind of, essentially, he just says, the brigadier has a lot to do. It, it, it would be really well if you show him a lot more respect. And it, and it hits me that maybe the doctor will undercut the brigadier, but only the doctor will ever undercut yeah. the brigadier. No one else is going to go after the brigadier. They all have to go through him. And that's what I love, is that they are really our best friends.
1: Yeah, it's like a family you know, thing, isn't it? You can say what you want about your own family, but if anybody else says it, then... <laughs>
0: That oh yeah! Oh, then that, there are no
1: bets. It's yeah. just uh,
0: where, 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 where does the weapon go? I don't know. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't. Inside violence, not at all. But you're right. It's 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 wonderful. You say that about your family. You say that about your best friend. If or, or best friend. Like I have, I have no brothers. I have three sisters. But I don't have any brothers. But I have a a guy who's like an older brother. His name is Field Turkin. And uh, someone made a joke once, you know, saying, "Oh, Theo we should, um, uh, we should." Uh, we should put you to the stake or something. And I don't know what they were saying. They were just joking. Around. And I turned around, and, and there was this little guy. And my friend is, is very, very, very tall. I, so am I, but he's super tall. And, and I turned around and I said, okay, you'll have to get through me first. Yeah. <laughs> I was joking, too. Yeah. But it's, it's that sense of, uh, you know, it's just that sense of you, you, you even, even when you're joking, you protect those you love. And so you know that that's, that's the case with this. It, it, the person we are really in certain ways it doesn't begin, obviously, but what people think of the Pertwey era, when they think of the Pertwey era
1: now, it really begins in tear of the Altars. It yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's... No, it's
1: it really is. Some of the stuff about, you saying about the Doctor and the Brigadier's friendship, I don't think you get the sense in this one that the Doctor and the Master were, were friends at school. It feels like that's a later invention when the, the Time yeah. Lord turns up in this and, and, and uh, warns the Doctor that the Master's around. The doctor's much more dismissive, isn't he? He calls him an mm-hmm. unimaginative plodder and and all the rest of it. Yeah. He doesn't say uh, anything about you know their former friendship or or much of a past um, association with each other. It's it's it feels like that's something. Once they saw the relationship between John Pertwee and and Roger Delgado and how it developed, it's something that was a little bit of retconning maybe that they they used to be friends. Yeah. With. There's not really much sign of that in here, yeah.
0: Exactly. I mean, I mentioned my friend, and I think it's maybe it's nice thing that I mentioned my friend Field because it, if I were to, put, if he and I were to be in the roles, whichever, as the doctor and the master, um, and see, and I've known him all my life, then people who could see these two are best friends, they're very close, they're they're they're, they're like brothers, and so even if you design the characters, all things equal, just like the, they thought, okay, they know each other, they maybe they were, but there is a reference to getting degrees, but yeah. that doesn't mean they got degrees together. It's just more like. Just, there's a correlation. He got a, a higher degree than yours. It doesn't say they're at the same time. Mm. They're able to use that as part of the recon, I suppose, later on, which I think probably dates back to the Sea Devils. I think it's the Sea Devils where they first say, you know, we, you could say we're at school together or something like that. Mm. But, um, but the, I think the same, I can understand it in the sense of if I, Chris McKean and Fieldberg, were playing the Doctor and the Master, the, they would, and they're, so, oh, they're supposed to be more enemies. me, they would be able to see, but they, these guys are friends, and they play it so well, there, it, it doesn't hinder the acting, but in a way, it makes a, maybe a bloodlust or a sense of um, uh, harder to just say that they just don't know each other and they're enemies. We've got to establish a relationship uh, mm-hmm. in the past because there's too much, not necessarily warmth, but there's too much, fami- there's too much familiarity. There's too much um, um, knowledge of one or the other. And there's mm-hmm. too much, uh, you know, this knowledge, familiarity, like I said. And because personally, I know, I think it was, I've seen in the footage, it, Back in nineteen ninety three, he was at the thirtieth anniversary um one of their con- um, conventions and they asked him about his friendship with Roger Elgato. Did you know him well? And he said Roger Elgato was probably one of my best friends. And said, yeah, he was one of your friends, right? I said, No, he was one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. And so um, you definitely get you're right, they, they probably had to add that that extra layer. That, that fits. Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily see it in Chair of the Austin, so they're probably playing it as on the script. It's probably not until I <laughs> Maybe Mind of Evil a little bit more. Clause of Axe is probably, certainly, I would say. But, um, but yeah, the they probably play on the script. We're enemies. We don't
1: have any... We know each other. But then they could see, well, these guys are best friends. Yeah, it's very neat. Yeah. It's, uh, I do like it the way, like you said before, they don't actually meet until the end of the, the fourth episode. It's You've got all that yes. sort of cat-and-mouse stuff beforehand, and it builds up, and you makes you make really sure look forward to the confrontation. Uh, and then the Doctor's final mm-hmm. line about um, really looking forward to... Uh, to, mm-hmm. to 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 having another confrontation with him um and in some ways it makes him sound a little bit callous because uh you know yes. so many people have died during this uh this adventure but it's it's that thing of um a worthy opponent isn't it um you know the the master yes. says you're my uh he says something about it's you
0: he says, You see, Doctor, you are my intellectual equal. That's almost it. I have so very few worthy opponents. When they're gone, I always miss
1: them. Yeah, and apparently the the almost in that um was Roger Delgado ad libbing Um ah. which is which is but it's it's a great line because it, it does really uh, feed into the master's character as well, doesn't it? Because it's uh you know it's a, he won't quite admit that the doctor is his intellectual equal. Oh yeah, he
0: will, he will never admit it. it's um I like there's I like the word little moments, they reveal almost a character element or a character whole, which is, they both, and again, they're, they're very good at subtly showing the parallels between the two characters. You know, when the master tells, in the presence of Joe Grant, when he's hypnotized, which he's hypnotized, he says, ah, oh, the doctor was there, says, as I thought, curiosity is its weakness. Well, I shall have to see that it's satisfied. And then the doctor says, when he's clearing up, you know, a boil out of the context of all had of all, which I think, it, not, not necessarily that, but the, the bomb that Professor Phillips uses is later on to be a Sontaran
1: fragment grenade, I think, so that's pretty cool.
0: In the novelization, yeah. obviously. But, um, but um, when he's blowing out the contents of the bomb at the, from the radio station in E H Q, he says, Vanity He says... Brigadier says, You convinced this man is working with the Nestines and the doctor says, um, I should think he's calling himself his their commander-in-chief by now. Vanity is his weakness. So, mm-hmm. curiosity for the doctor, vanity for the master. It's... Um, it's very it's it, it's it's a very well written script. that's yeah. that's, that's a, it's a, it's an excellent script. And it's it's a wonderful script. Like I said parallel storytelling, mm. parallel bases, you know, of operations, parallel comments. Very neat.
1: Yeah, and the the comment, I guess, from the master about uh, curiosity and the doctor's weakness uh, yes. pays off in Planet of the Spiders, doesn't it? Because that's what the uh, his, his kind of ultimate undoing. Is in that story yeah. that uh, it's it's his um, greed for for knowledge and scientific curiosity yeah. that, uh, that that brings about his downfall. So were, the seeds were there, you know. That understanding of the character was there right from from that early on, from *Terrence Stakes* *Barry Letts, Yeah,
0: it's in, it's interesting. It, it, it works very well, it, it, even from a behind the scenes perspective, though, which is that the whole idea of the Doctor being greedy and mixing plant spiders. *Terrence Stakes* public said he, he wasn't critiquing, but he certainly. So they didn't agree with that interpretation mm-hmm. because, because, um, and I agree with him because I like him. Feel doesn't have any flaws, you, and I think um, you could have you know moments of, of curiosity, things like that. But I think he, he said, and I've mentioned this before, he felt that because he said, Aaron "Dick said that because Third Doctor wasn't a greedy man, and John Pertwee wasn't a greedy man, and certainly how John Pertwee, how the Third Doctor gets the Metellus Three Crystal." I would say it's not an act of greed because he doesn't put anybody in danger except himself. Mm. So it might, it might still lead to some catastrophic results. But it, it's simply an interpretation. And like I said, it's Campo and Paul Shea saying, oh, it's your greed. And, yeah. and someone else telling someone's greedy doesn't mean it's so. But it still parallels very nicely. Mm. Uh, it makes me wonder what they would have done in the original version of Final Game because um, I know what, I can, I can. I won't as we can talk about this later, but I'm, I'm not going to get into it, but I can say I know what happens in the final game now. I've written the full story, and it's all been recorded now. We're in, in the editing stages of it now. Part one is nearly complete, by the way. In fact, it is, I think, complete, so we'll be getting ready for maybe that, but um, to use in some way. But the point is, I know what I do in 2018-19. I'm very curious, we'll never know. But I would be so curious to know. If it had ever in some alternate reality that we could develop somehow. What would have been maybe that angle of curiosity? Perhaps if they had had the foresight or the hindsight
1: to use that, what that would have been in 1974. Yeah, very interesting. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the, the thing that the doctor calls the master out for is uh, how convoluted and and complex. Um, his plans are and and I suppose when you think about it as well like I suppose there's two things really like the the circus doesn't really um have any point other than it's sort of visually interesting that the master lands in the circus and then the doctor visits it later and they have the run-in with the uh the strongman and, and the circus folk there um, and then the other thing is that they go to all these lengths, develops all these different plastic weapons and eventually settles on the daffodils, which affixate people with the radio wave. Um, yeah. Just to kill us um, like a relatively small amount of people um, in the UK, okay. um, <laughs> in one country, in one small country uh, in order to create enough chaos that the autons can, or the nestines can come and invade. Um, but he has access to all these uh, bombs and, uh, and, and alien, mm-hmm. <laughs> alien grenades which would cause just as much devastation um, without having to sort of leave this trail of, uh, of clues that the doctor could, could trace back to the plastics factory. But uh, it's, it's, it's great that they, they actually hang a lantern on that and say, well, it'll be ridiculously overcomplicated because you've done it. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. I mean, I think the line he says is... Vicious, complicated, and inefficient—typical of your work. It brings yes, yeah. <laughs> to a couple things, which is one: the war chief, uh, the war chief's uh, plans were had an inefficiency to them. Uh, yes. Hypnotizing all those soldiers, there was a five percent rate, and actually, he's the one that was saying we need to fix that. So there was an inefficiency in his plans and designs. But also, maybe in a weird way, Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight—he, um, I don't know if it's necessarily—it's very complicated. But he all seems to have access to his character, his interpretation, to and limited supply of bombs and ammonium nitrate and, and weapons and things like that. You can understand where he gets some of them, but where he's getting the bombs from, Good mm-hmm. question. I've, in my head, Ken, I thought to myself, is he somehow associated with the League of Shadows? Uh, probably not, but maybe he's appropriating some of the material. I don't know. But the point is, yes, there is that. They, they make a notice of, of if a person's watching it with a critical eye, they are going to say, okay, what was the point of the circus? What was the point of the of the bomb? In, I think part one, what was the point of the police and maybe the quarry? And they say, oh, the point, is the master is vicious, complicated, yeah. <laughs> <or>
1: the, the, <laughs> it, it, he, he is, but, but his line to that,
0: his rebuttal to that is, is just equally as good. When he says, the doctor says what I just said, he says, come, come, doctor. Death is, oh, um, what do you say? Death is always most terrifying when it strikes invisibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: it's beautiful and the way he even the way that Delgado kind of moves his hand because he's holding he has one hand he's got the doctor trained with his TCE you know called that but, but the way he kind of with relish moves his yeah. hand like, invisibly and it's like yeah like he's tired, tasting a fine wine or something yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, oh I, I swear I, I watching though that episode watching any of the episodes m- makes me even more so just lament that Roger Delgado died before he could do his last story because mm-hmm. it he, he deserved it. He deserved to have. That's why I'm doing this the final game now, and that's why we're doing this chat because he deserved to have a final story. He he deserved to have cl- at the least closure. I'm grateful that the Masters continued, but he deserved closure. Mm-hmm. He 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 had two. His, his performance was spot on everywhere, and 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 even like I said before, in the Time Monster, not his last story that he did, but next to last you look at the performance <clears throat> that he's doing in the Time Monster by the end and almost the end of his time you know it's uh, I don't know if they had it back then but in my opinion that would be bastard worthy. I think all were but uh, he's on all cylinders in the Time Monster mm-hmm. anywhere but he's he adds in what, add, what pushes it over from an edge is that he's doing the romantic element with the queen of, of, of the I've still forgotten her name uh, of um, uh, uh, Atlantis He's firing on all cylinders there. He is excellent in his performance. And then something else I want to say is, you know, the end of the deserving a final scene is from French in Space, how he's acting and treating treating Joe Grant at the end of part five of French in Space. Another really frightening performance because he is, um, there's no, it's gentlemanly, but there's this gleeful, the the, 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 the menace of familiarity like now I'm going to have a chance to, keep, to destroy the doctor I'm going to use you Miss Grant it is it's frightening because the way it's even shot too because it's, it's not a terribly dark set mm. you have these bright lights on the walls in the bunker but Delgado was filmed and however they told him he's almost completely in shadow and you're like oh he's evil
1: yeah
0: <laughs> but he's, he's complexly it's beautiful but uh the Autism is a joy to watch again it was a, it's a wonderful story I
1: uh,
0: it, it sets off that arc of season eight. It's um, it's wonderful. It, it, yeah, yeah I, I yeah I love it along. It's a good it's a good
1: episode. I, I um, Bessie's there of course, and that's cool. Yeah, is you talking about um, Delgado? there, something that um, I don't think I talked about last week. I was talking about Scream of the Shalca. It feels like yeah. um, a nice tribute to the way that Delgado played it when the uh, Derek Jacobi master in that one um, at the end, where mm-hmm. Allison's come aboard the TARDIS um and he says something like um I can't quite remember what the what what the line that leads up to it is but she he says something like well I don't like you and she says well well why do you call me my dear and he goes well I call everybody my dear <laughs> um and it's uh it's it's sort of a nice a nice line about that that charm that the master's got um and mm-hmm. uh, and the way that he does do that he, he always says uh, my dear miss grant and all that kind of stuff it's uh yeah it's fantastic yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love well, this story, too. I think the only thing that yeah. slightly lets it down is that sort of resolution that the doctor points oh, out yeah. to the master. Yes. Well, they're not going to be able to tell the difference between you and all these humans when this, this huge yes. um, energy squid descends. Um, and, and he goes, oh, no, you're right. Um, but uh, it's still great yeah. that he escapes at the end and you know that he's still at large mm-hmm. on Earth somewhere. Um, uh, oh, yes. And, uh, yeah, it's the it's one little cut kind of thing. But the rest of the story is so good and so enjoyable. Uh, you can easily overplay oh, it. Your it, it,
0: it you can. I mean, it, it's, some have commented compared, I think, um, and I've never read a Stephen King novel. But some of the people have compared a little bit of Robert Holmes to Stephen King in terms of ability, but also that they both seem to have a weakness, as perhaps most apparent in the Autons, for him. And I think people call it The Stand, maybe. I've never read the Stephen King novel The Stand. But how? neither one both can write wonderful stories, but neither one can write a very good ending.
1: Because
0: right. um, it is hard to write an ending. Mm-hmm. In the case of The Stand, I think it's literally Deus Ex Machina, the hand of heaven or something comes and smashes the bad guys or something. And then in, in the case there of The Autons, what we just described it's. Because when you think of Terry the Autons, the master very nearly succeeds. Mm-hmm. You, you see, because, you know, the, his subordinate Farrell nearly upsets the apple cart as they call it, because he, he you know, he um, interferes with the autonomous that's driving the, uh, the the car and so they almost you know, fall into a ditch and the master mm-hmm. takes him up and then the Autons say, you know, it's too late our Autons just being sort of a mess like, no, get, you, again, the the power of Delgado's acting because the way he's the desperate the suddenly the desperation in his eyes and the way he, he's like I am going to the radio tower and then they say no it's too late the armatures when he started like those no soldiers that that the rage just coming yeah. out just the break the, the charm is on and and it's like I must destroy. And then and the look on his face when he's again before he was in the parallel the part one when he's using the, the circular dials in, in part one and he's very calm and but mm-hmm. very kind of menacing. Here, he, he, he's bent over and he's he's, he's grinding the, the, the dials, and there's this grimace on his face. And then he turns around and sees it, and then he just starts. And then the, he's 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 almost laughing. And he, Delgado was the premier actor mm-hmm. of his generation. I say, and I say that honestly. And Doctor Who guest actors, he was the premier actor of his generation. He was excellent because he he said so much. He did so much for saying so little. Um, you can tell I enjoy his performance. Yeah. stories <laughs> Oh, it was he was amazing. Just very well done. And of course, you maybe a little bit of that Bond feel that he's wearing a suit at that point. Everyone knows the master's name, New Jack, and he only wears it the first half of part one. Then he's in the the um the designer suit. Mm-hmm. For the rest of the story, it's kind of the Bond style they, Yeah, Bond would have been around it. Of course it would. Yeah. Um very well done. Be remarkable. but you're right, that that the, the one weakness, you know. You think that thing will spare you? Oh. You're right,
1: let's do you
0: know. Yeah. Still
1: it's still a cool moment where they work together. It's not the, the performance is it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not the bit that you really remember from it, I think, as well. there's so many other memorable parts that, that you don't yeah. think of that first. And uh, it just reminded me that actually when you're talking about Farrell is the really sadistic thing of um putting the master mask yeah, on Farrell yeah. and dressing him so that he uh, so that he comes out and then he gets shot instead. Um
0: He gets shot.
1: Yeah, and it's yeah. very like Mission Farrell Impossible like devastated. The, the Mission Impossible films, isn't it? With the um, it's something in the, the sort of the early Mission Impossible films when they've always got those those masks and then there's all kinds of tricky things where it's it it is Ethan Hunt and it isn't Ethan Hunt and stuff and then they call it out. I think in some of them, like oh, how do you make these masks so quickly <laughs> and where do you produce them from? Yeah. So they uh, they brought that sort of suitcase device into into like I don't know, kind of some of the middle films where they scan someone's face and it shows you the uh, the, the plastic being moulded. Um, whereas the master, presumably, just has a store of them in his pocket. <laughs> uh, for, yeah, got, for, for,
0: you're right. He's got the rubber mask. Delgado has the rubber masks. Ainley has... It looks like... Well, it, they, it, maybe he's advanced to prosthesis by the time he gets to Ainley's master. He like, he has almost two elaborate costumes, like Khalid and Time Flight. Um, yeah. But the prosthetics look good because it's... whereas. In Delgado's time, it was another actor, and then they pull off the mask and oh, it's. But in Ainley's time, I think it's a testament to the prosthetics and maybe Ainley's chameleon-like ability as an actor. Mm-hmm. It's Ainley usually in those. It's alien this guy's but you don't think, oh, that's the Master. It's like, who is that guy? Oh shoot, it is the Master. Like, yeah. like when he's when he the because ho- it's holographic. I think um, masks by that point in mm-hmm. by like King's Demons or something. But yeah, you right. he thought the Master must have a. Um, a whole store of them in his pocket, of trans, yeah. trans, <laughs> uh, dimensionally transcendental pockets. Probably, I'm glad they mentioned that. Eventually, I think that was first finally confirmed with "Runaway Bride," but uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it's um, it's neat that he's got them. One of the things that we didn't mention, briefly about his hypnosis, I think, is interesting. The telepathy, like you said, Delgado can just look at somebody, and then maybe in later episodes, will because they probably reconcile you saying that they liked probably give him a catch and I'm a master, you will obey me. Mm-hmm. He kind of says it in time. He says, you will obey me without question, but he doesn't say it all that. But it's interesting how later masters, like Ainley, isn't really able to... It doesn't, we don't usually see him just look at somebody. He's often using more t- traditional hip-hop things. He might have a little shiny ball that, that he'll use and, and swing in somebody's face. He does that in Mark of the Ronny. He does that in The Ultimate Foe. Mm-hmm. I like to think that that's because... Um, the is a bit reduced about that time. He's not fully... Hit. Because he's in a troconite body, his abilities are somewhat repressed.
1: Yeah, he's not in a time-lord you know, body, yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Because, but, 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 you know, it depends on the writer because then you have someone like Roberts who's clearly in a human body and he can just look at somebody and hypnotize them. Who knows? Yeah. But, uh, but he's got weird abilities, that version of the master. But, but still, Delgado is um, just looking at somebody. just a presence. It, you, you can see why... It confirmed to me, like I said, watching this story again. It confirmed to me why I enjoy the mask so much. I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned, we probably should, is the, uh, it was the, uh, is the uh, the doll. What well, people mention is the doll, the, uh, the 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 demon doll. Yeah. Um, that's that's pretty uh, horrifying. Mm-hmm. When you Think about it, because it looks hideous, and I don't know if the person in like a quote unquote fat suit. I don't know how to, you know, because it's clearly got on CSO, or if they got a small person, uh, I don't know. But um, but the way it moves, the way it looks, the way it strangles uh, Mr. Farrell Sr., John Farrell. Um, i they call him Mr. Farrell Sr. but he has a different name to his son, who knows. But yeah. very, um, very well done and frightening. And he eerie. And, and then when he attacks Joe, too, and then the, the doctor shoots him, or even when they... Dissect it, you don't see them dissecting it. Maybe they had, maybe they
1: couldn't get past the sensors. I don't know. Yeah, I thought Very. that was that was interesting that they would be squeamish about that about about cutting into a plastic doll and and, and cut away from it. Yeah, uh, but apparently, yeah, this, we just
0: this, see the reaction.
1: Yeah, this was apparently was based on a toy that was around in the seventies that Robert Holmes hated. Um, so it was uh, it was it was kind of loosely based on some kind of troll doll. Um, but huh. yeah, because they say they're, they're like an adult novelty thing, they're not something you would give to kids, because they're quite big, aren't they? They're sort of like, not really adult, yeah. but maybe more like a big teddy bear type size. Yeah, it's probably,
0: it's probably like, a, maybe, a, maybe 18 inches high or something, it looks like that, because it's not, it's, it's not something, the master when he holds, he's not holding it in his palm, he's kind of holding it by the side with one hand, or I mean, mm. both, actually no, he kind of uses both hands, You can probably hold one, but even so, it's pretty big. Yeah. So it's, that gives it a little bit of menace, too, that it's not this tiny thing. Maybe a little believability. It's not this ball sized thing running around. Oh, it's choking your Adam's apple. No, it's a, it's a, it's a child sized thing that's crushing your throat.
1: Yeah.
0: It's um, that's pretty scary. Yeah. But another yeah. One, of those, one of those complicated things that's just used to kill, it shows the master's adaptability. Yeah. But. Uh, it's just used to kill one person. Well,
1: eventually. I suppose that whole insidious thing, isn't it, of of uh, things in your home. So if you've got dolls and things, if you've got um, telephone cable, it's it's uh, it's it's making everything scary. It's that traditional Doctor Who thing of making the everyday terrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it feeds into that really, really well. Uh, yes, yeah. Morgan, yeah, well, no, no, the Brigadier says uh, being part part four after um remove we'll the cable, the telephone cable from the from its socket.
0: And so the signal that was being sent, uh, it's been cut off. Hmm. And, you know, the doctor says it's plastic, and anything that's plastic can be given can be uh, in life by the nestings. And then the brigadier says something that just drives Yes, and there's a lot of plastic around.
1: Yeah.
0: It, it really makes me wonder what would happen. You know, because, you know, well, I guess what gives you the buffer the sense of, you know, not being too scared is that it has to be specially made. It's, it's nesting plastic. It has to be... Because even even the telephone flex, it's something the master has installed, mm-hmm. so it's somehow maybe a processed or a special type of plastic. Then he enable that or a regular telephone cord. Even plastic might not be able to do that. It makes you wonder what would happen if you had the budget and just went all out. Maybe a, at this level, it'll have, it'll have to have an almost semi like you're the only time you use the autons for maybe a long time. Mm-hmm. If you just look crazy and then all types of plastic were affected, if that happened, the world would be a, a bloodbath. Yeah. And I don't mean like process, pre-processed, all this nesting plastic. But I mean, your credit card suddenly turns from such your throat or your, um, Oh, I have a plastic bowl right here. Your plastic bowl, uh, you know, maybe melts and it melts over your head or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, it would be frightening to yeah. see what you could really do with that concept. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, and obviously it was... Uh, Russell T. Davis used them again to, to relaunch the series in 2005. And uh, yeah, using the wheelie bin was a a, a brilliant idea, I think, because what he had that image of of kids coming out to school on the morning that the bins are all put out, ready to be collected, and just seeing a row of wheelie bins and thinking, "Uh oh!" Like, (laughs) Uh (laughs) better run them, Yeah. yeah. Well, I think of the Autons and the history in the series.
0: They were, of course, this is a sequel to the Autons, or Spirit from Space. Mm -hmm. Their design is a little bit different. In the first story, they look more like. The Autons are more of the focus mo- monster spearhead from space, and they have their quote unquote master leader is Channing. So, yeah, they have a human looking person, but because they want them to be memorable, they're given kind of a, a parody of the human face. You know, they look mm-hmm. like a dummy, you know, mannequin face. Because the master is such a prominent figure, it's more like using a, the, the Autons are really more like a prop, although we get to hear them speak. Mm-hmm. You know, one there's a speaking automaton, very scary voice, you know, that that very electronic sound, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, hurts the voice, I think. But they, but the automats are literally faceless in this story. And then they have a head. There's very, there's almost no. You can see what looks like you know a little bit of a nose, maybe probably for the actors wearing so they could breathe, but they're much more of a prop in the story, more like a a, a thug or a heavy in this. Mm. Um, there is the. um, of the history of their series they disappear after the Autons until Rose there wasn't a plan to have them appear in um I don't think there was any I, I, I know of the thing that was supposed to bring them back it probably would have been too much to have Liz, Joe and Sarah Jean debut with the Autons mm-hmm. um although she gets the Sontar and Sarah Jean but I, I don't I know of no plans to, to ever bring back the Autons again in the Pertwee era at that time mm-hmm. there were plans to bring them back for a scene in the Five Doctors um. where they would have cast so Sarah would have met the Autons mm-hmm that's a narrative gap I want Sarah Jane to meet the Autons but uh, I still like in my head canon I like to think that that still happens that the third Doctor I'm it hasn't been included in like a novelization the third mm-hmm. Doctor and Sarah Jane encounter Autons so in my mind they encounter Autons and the five Doctors there was absolute well as I say absolute there was the intent to maybe bring them back in season 23 the original before the trial of salmon Yellow Fever sometimes known as Yellow Fever and how to cure it there's so many conflicting um, 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 reports of what, who actually would have featured in or would have been just mm-hmm. Autons. Would have been Aut- Autons, certainly. We know mm-hmm. that. But Autons, Autons with the Master, Autons with the Master and the Ronnie, with the Brigadier have also appeared. I would have liked that. Yeah. Um, was it in Singapore? Was it not? We know almost nothing about. We know that it was planned. It's so not like, mm-hmm. oh, it was never going to happen. I don't think Big Finish ever going to do it for Lost Stories because I don't think there's any material. I will say this. Years ago, I was pretty... Once I found out that there was... I like threes. I like to do things in trilogies. So when I found out there were two stories with Autons and they wanted to do a third in the Colin Baker era, I got obsessed with that. I, I want to write the Yellow Fever. And it had a cure. It was just Yellow Fever. Uh, I, and I wrote a version of it. It had the Master. It had the Ronnie. It had the Brigadier. Um, it had Autons. It wasn't Singapore. These autons, um, I've heard, and i never confirmed, but some people I've read online, i, I read read on, reports online that the autons would have expanded to rubber. So I had the idea that maybe you have, I thought, okay, let's have autons firing rubber bullets. Let's have rubber autons so they're very tough to fight. Um, I have one idea that these autons could uh, place their hands or something on top of someone's head and the, a little bit of like you know the the, the chair in terms of the, mm-hmm. of the and the, the plastic would melt, and it would melt over someone's face and then get into their mouth, and then fill their lungs. So you'd have full plastic I Had a weird idea. that I did that to the doctor, but I probably and I, I had the doctor getting out of it by, uh, and this probably was showing my hand too much. I had that he he somehow temporarily he, he, tell, he kind of shifts himself out of the plastic. And so what's left behind is a shape of his, his, his nose, his mouth, his esophagus, and his lungs, plastic you know, left behind on the ground. I thought, that's cool, but I'm sure if this were edited, they'd say the doctor can't do that. I'm sure mm-hmm. he can, but it would have been too far out of the pale of other things you would normally see the doctor mm-hmm. doing. But still, I, I tried to write a version of Yellowstone a long time ago, and I think maybe I'll get around to that again. Who knows? <laughs> mm-hmm. But it inspired me. These stories inspired me to do that.
1: That's it, and obviously we, we talked briefly about the final game. Um, we're going to do uh, some, some podcasts um, about each episode of that, um, but any updates in the meantime?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's funny, you and I, this is the third time we've spoken, and it, it seems to be every six months. I, yeah. I think you and I are going to speak again soon. I'm not going to try to invite myself, but I think it's clear we're going to do more with this. Hmm. The first time we talked about L was last year, and then we talked about the Battle of Ranskorov-Kolos in December, here it is June again barely but even so uh yes since we last spoke and since the first time we spoke um the final game seven parts all have been written they've all been recorded there is one part um has been recorded yet i, I don't think i could check but and that's chris walker thompson is uh people will know him as the second doctor kind of a, the best uh, second doctor impression you can ever find yes he um I, I'm I'm giving a tease that you might you'll see the second doctor somehow in the story, but not, not how you expect. It's not the three doctors, um, and I might as well say that if you've seen the second doctor, yeah, you'll probably see the first doctor, but again, it's not the three doctors. It's not that style, and it's not like William Hartnell and the three doctors. So I'm not giving I won't give it away, but but uh, Chris Walker Thompson's going to record his audio once he does that. All of the dialogue, including yours. So, thank you for helping us as Prime Minister Jeremy Thorpe. <laughs> wonderful. Well done. It's all done. So, in a nutshell, the final game is complete. Uh, um, I've a, a wonderful guy named Gareth Severn, who does his own audio ranges, uh, adventures for um, other properties like Little Red Riding Hood, or uh, he does Batman, the, the Dark Knight Chronicles. So, he does Batman themed uh, audios, um, fairy tale themed audios. He did a, oh, a notable version of The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. He's editing it, and he has told me that part one is complete. And so we're thinking of, um, we're thinking of uh, using part one as maybe a, a review copy for other things. So well, we're deciding that. So, but, and, and that's all the file game is, it's com- is well on its way. It may, it'll be so much for us to fully re- realize, but well on its way to um, to um, fruition. Um to what I'm doing. I've partnered with Harris and um, his work. Um, we're both writing some scripts, and he's doing the editing. I'm, I'm, I'm branching out into other stories that are kind of centennial themes. So I've got the final game is a centennial tribute to Roger Delgado. I have written the scripts, and they're starting to be— They actually, they've been mostly recorded. It's only a four-part story uh, for something called The Misshapen Planet, which is a centennial celebration of Peter Butterworth the original monk in the William Hartnell story so it is the third encounter mm-hmm. between the, 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 the first William Hartnell's doctor and Peter Butterworth's monk and we have a wonderful actor named Pete Lutz who's a voice actor and stage actor and based in Texas in America of course and uh, he was uh, I, it was very hard trying to find a Peter Butterworth uh, voice impressions because no one really does it but he nailed it um, and I knew he would nail it because he when he, when he gave his audition tape so he uh, he was that, living a little bit, and say, and being a little comedic, and being himself. I thought, oh, 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 he's a natural comedian. You guys have to be, you, the, the traditional. The, you, you cast an actor as a, as a who's a uh, a comedian, mm-hmm. and I, I'm unaware of Pete Lutz if he's any comedic, um, any comedy training, but he was being very, he was very funny, and I thought, oh, I hope so, I hope so, I hope he nails the voice because he's got the comedic timing. Yeah. So we have that. Um, let's see. Uh, I meant, I've written I'm writing a story called The Veiled Memory which is kind of a quasi-prequel to the Final Game and then it has the, um, the Master meeting Third Doctor before Chaviyat so right after his from space but to make it fit in the continuity it's not Roger Delgado it's Everett Uh so It's My war Chief* is the Master story mm-hmm. I've got another story called Bandages which is based off of a uh, anthology piece in so *The masterpiece of an anthology that uh, Scott, your friend Scott Claringbold and mine uh, did, and I'm waiting until the the, the the story is published, but I've got an uh, audio version of it, so it's, again, the Brayshaw Master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very good, but it's very experimental. But no no real doctor shows up for this story. Oh, uh, yeah. I have a follow-up to the final game, a trilogy that I'm designing, with the fourth doctor and the Roger Delgado Master. That is not easy to write. Not easy to write, because you can write the Third Doctor Delgado, that almost writes itself. Trying to write the fourth, early like Hinchcliffe era fourth Doctor, with post Barry let um, um, Roger Delgado. Not only you have to create that version of Master, you have to extend Delgado beyond his television time. You have to then pair him up with the fourth Doctor, which is not easy because it never happened on screen. Doesn't happen, extremely mm-hmm. doesn't happen anywhere. So that's been a challenge. But I can. But I've written the first story. It's four part story called The Broken Sky set immediately before chair of the Zygons. Doctors Harry and Sarah Jane, in a nutshell, finally make it back to Earth, but the Earth has been pretty much destroyed. And the Master reigns supreme with his race of beings. He calls them the children. They're the fragments, glass men, broken glass men running about. Very, uh, kind one of inspiring maybe kind of surrealist art of people like uh, um, Dali mm-hmm. or um, or some of the maybe European um, artists of the time. So I, you have, imagine, Black landscape of glass, blood red sky, huge red giant, black golden sun. The master riding in a chariot of a um, sphere of black um, of black fragments. Uh, his tARDIS in the shape of a of the capital of Gallifrey, of so its black glass, things like that. Some characters will be left over, so I'll ask you maybe formally: Would you like to play uh, Jeremy Thorpe again for a role in the, the Broken Sky?
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You can count me in, definitely.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very and, much. And then um, you're welcome. And, and just so as I said, as a trilogy, a trilogy, I'll just quickly say that the second story is called "The Wounded Earth," set immediately before Mas- the Mask of Mandora. Um I have written the outlines, so but I haven't written the scripts. But the nutshell, for that story is uh, it's like it's the unit send off that we never got on screen of the Brigadier, era, which is everyone comes back. The Brigadiers there: Benton, Yates, Harry Sullivan the Doctor and and, and the surgeon, maybe even Lishan, I'm not so sure, but, um, not Joe, of course, but, uh, the Masters there, um, oh, other things, there's a lot of other, you know, monsters and returning things, and, and in a nutshell, I won't give it away, but, um, well, it explains why the Brigid is away in the Andor invasion, and Seeds of Doom in Geneva, and that there are these volcanic eruptions happening, and, and you know, um, quakes and earthquakes all over the world, that's, maybe a geological interest, but something very familiar and something very dangerous has been appearing and sh- and, 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 and making appearances whenever there are these volcanic problems. And um, and it ties back to uh, to an, er- an early Pertwee story, and and a Pertwee story that has been just recently revisited in the Bikinish audience. And the third story is something called The Dead Body. I don't know what will happen in that story. All I know is that it's, leads into, it is my telling of how the Master ends up in the condition that he has in the Deadly Assassin. So you'll end with on Tersers. Much more personal story, just the fourth doctor, Surgeon and the Brigadier. Brigadier has a large role in the story, and how they deal with the final days of the Roger Delgado Master, if it is. Delgado he may not be by that point. And I have other, those are the stories that I've got planned, well, those are the stories that I have in some form of production. I have other stories planned, so I'll leave that to everyone's imagination, but uh, but I will throw out a couple little word teasers: Dodo, Sarah Jane, with Le Shaw. Um, well, um, it was one, and uh, and uh, and uh, and if it all works out, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you can probably get well. I'll just say this: and um, my 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 two real big passion projects. One is. Uh, Times Champion, I want to eventually uh, dramatize Times Champion as an audio I don't know how I'm going to do it because right. the cast is probably 60 people but uh, Six Doctor Valet yes, and then I won't say what this is, but um, a Passion Project, a big one with, uh, with, uh, with Sir Alistair Brigadier uh, I'll leave it, but I say Sir Alistair for a reason so I'll leave, it, I'll leave it there, I'll let you know what it is, but yeah, it's good
1: Cool Thank you very much for joining me to discuss Terror of the Autons.
0: Thank you for having me again. I look forward to. Thank you for, for like I said, thank you for, the third, for giving me the third time, the charm of a third time. I love to repeat. Thank you so much.
1: I we'll, hope uh, we'll, uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Um, and thank you very much for listening at home. Goodbye. <laughs>